ever wonder how some of the greatest people today become who they are? Most everyone has experienced that turning point in their life. It's these moments that forever changed who they were into whom they become. Today on The Moment with Chris Epting, you'll hear from these people and hopefully be inspired to find your own life-changing moment. Now, here is your host, Chris Epting. Thank you, and uh, I hope everyone's doing well in in what feels like (laughs) week 1700 of of coronavirus lockdown. I know it's not, and and thankfully here in California, things seem to be turning uh, the tide a little bit back toward the positive, so that's good. I don't want to waste any time today because I have a really special guest who doesn't really need an introduction. Uh, He's John Oates, of course, one half of the world's best-selling uh, pop music duet as part of, uh, of Hall & Oates with his uh, partner, Daryl Hall. But, you know, it's funny, that doesn't even really begin to describe John. When you get to know him, he's also a, uh, he's a pilot. He's a world-class race car driver. He's a champion skier. He's a tennis player. He is sort of the ultimate alpha male, and I'm really proud to know him. was thrilled to have had the uh, pleasure and privilege of co-writing his memoir, Change of Seasons, with him. John Oates, thank you so much for being here, man. Well, it's great to talk to you, Chris. Always great to talk to you. You know, John, it's funny. Um, you've been as busy, you know, despite the shutdowns. You know, you were on, now I know you taped it before all of this, but you were on the show, The Goldbergs, last week, which we'll talk about in a minute. You've been doing uh, just really great online work as part of a lot of uh, benefits and, 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 and your own kind of online, online music presentations. What's it been like for you? Because um, you haven't slowed down. It seems like every day you're on doing something related to what's going on. Well, you know, the, initially when this, uh, this, the sequestering uh, began, it was interesting. It was an interesting, interesting for me because, I, I, you know, I, I do tend to keep myself uh, busy. <laughs> I guess that's an understatement. Uh, but, um, you know, I, I thought to myself, wow, this is kind of a self-imposed period of time where I can reflect and perhaps not be on the hamster wheel, you know, running at full speed. And uh, I began to, it, it was it was odd at first, and then I began to kind of enjoy it. And then that trans, transitioned into a kind of an introspective and creative time where I could, I redid my little home studio and I began to write some songs and I began to experiment with uh, with, with especially with the songwriting, with doing things I hadn't done in years, writing a little more pop uh, kind of uh, groove oriented type stuff as opposed to the roots and retro um, blues that I had been doing. Um, so really it gave me a chance to re- recalibrate my creative juices. And uh, that's, been a, that's been a very positive thing. Uh, and of course, you know, I'm trying to help with, uh, with the world in terms of, uh, you know, at least contributing through my, uh, um, through my songs and my creativity with various uh, sites that are soliciting uh, for donations for music cares and uh, food banks and things like that. So, you know, if, in a, if I can help in a small way by doing things like that, then of course I'm trying that as well. Well, there was an announcement. It's funny, you know, the, the idea of Daryl Hall and John Oates, it never really goes away, whether we're talking the Goldbergs, whether there are commercials on TV, it's just become such a, a layered part of pop culture. And then comes in the middle of all of what's going on, comes the news that there's new music being worked on by you and Daryl for, uh, for, uh, for a record, for an album, uh, again, which a lot of people didn't see coming. What can you share about that? Because that, that made news and got a lot of people excited. Well, why don't you give us kind of an overview of where it's at, what you're doing, and, and just how it's all working? Well, that, that project would be in a completely different place had the corona situation not 
happened. Uh, Daryl Daryl got energized uh, through. Uh, I think he he felt like he, I think he needed his creative juices started flowing. This and this was prior to the Corona, you know, uh, shutdown. Um, and he met a a producer, a songwriter, kind of multi instrumentalist, a young guy from Holland, when we were on tour in Europe last year. And he really liked what the guy was doing and the kind of tracks the guy was making. And and when he was in England, I think he reached out to him and he started uh, making some tracks and getting a feel for him. And the, 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 the young guy he's working with um, is a huge Hall & Oates fan. So I think there was this kind of thing where Daryl was bringing the, you know, the history and the, and the, um, the, the thing that he does personally to, uh, you know, to collaborate with someone who is coming at it from a more modern sensibility. And I think that got him excited. He told me about it um, and said, man, why don't we try to do some tracks with this guy and see what happens? So that's really how it started. And then I, you know, through being at home by myself, I started to write and I started just to be in that world. Uh, I, you know, I kind of jokingly say I'm, I put my Hall & Oates hat on and uh I went to work basically. Um, and so during that time, I've been sharing ideas with him over the internet. Uh, we haven't been able to obviously collaborate very much. Um, I think we're waiting for the day when we can actually physically get together. And I think that's probably a better scenario for us. I, uh, for Daryl and I to collaborate via the internet, it's probably not something that's going <laughs> to go that well. So, so we, um, so we decided to just gather our ideas, and I'm sure when the time comes to get together, he'll have a ton of ideas, I'll have a ton of ideas, and we'll see where that takes us, which is, quite frankly, uh, exactly how we used to make records in the old days. Um, you know, I'd write, he'd write, we'd write a little bit together, we'd pull in ideas from other people, and eventually a, an idea or, or a cohesive uh, theme or style would emerge from that. So more than likely, that's what will happen when the time comes. It's really exciting. Jet Rebel is the Dutch multi-instrumentalist that you were referring to that Daryl met uh, over in Europe. And, you know, it's uh, it's fascinating because this year, we're at about 40 years now, this year that, that Voices was released. And, you know, when you and I were working on our book, Change of Seasons, your memoir, uh, to me, the Voices chapter was really fascinating because I don't know how many people are aware of just what the stakes were at that point for you and Daryl. I mean, you really were at a point coming, you know, out of the 19th 1970s, things were changing a lot all around you. And you guys had to come up big with something that was still was sort of one foot in what you had done, but also, you know, in the current, in the present of what was going on. And you not only did it, you did it in a really big way that really set the table for for what happened throughout the 80s. I think Voices is, is a really important record. I know you, you've thought a lot about it too, right? Oh, yeah. I, and I totally agree with you. It was a, it was a super important record for so many reasons. Um, you know, we, it was the first album uh, that we produced ourselves and didn't use an outside producer. You know, the, the, um, you know, the, the paradigm uh, of the 60s and 70s was an artist would uh, be assigned a producer by the label, record label, and uh, the, the producer's job was to, you know, make, you know, facilitate the record, keep control of the budget, make sure the artist didn't go off the rails. Well, you know, as you all know, that didn't always work so well. Um, <laughs> Uh, and, uh, you know, we had been through all that uh, starting in the in this early 70s, straight through with various producers. And um, we had gotten to the point in our career where we had so much experience in the studio that we, we first of all, we didn't need any technical expertise. Uh, all we needed was a great engineer, which we, of course, found in, um, you know, many people, Neil Kernan and uh, Bob mm -hmm. um, 
Bob Clearwater. Uh, but and and we had developed this incredible band in the late seventies. We started to develop the band that became the the famous eighties band. You know, right. G.E. Smith and T-Bone Wolk and Mickey Curry and Charlie Deshant. And so we had all the, all the parts kind of came together, and it just came together at this time when new wave music was sweeping New York, punk was happening. Hip hop was beginning. There was all these really exciting uh, sound elements uh, sweeping the, the well, really sweeping over New York City where we were, and we were absorbing it all. And, and we synthesized those sounds and that feel and that sensibility into a, into a, a record that we produced ourselves. And of course, you know that led us to uh, the great commercial success of the eighties. And it really was a New York City record. You know, for all of the attachment you guys uh, that's projected on you about Philadelphia, I think Voice has really established you as a New York City act. Uh, and, and it felt the rhythms of the street were so, so baked into voices. You know, one story that... Um, that I thought was great. We're actually going to go to a break in a, in a minute, but uh, but we'll get back to it. Is it's always funny certain songs that almost don't make it on the record. And and you shared with me when we read in your book a story about a song that wasn't on the original when you had your listening party uh, when you were basically done. It wasn't on there. And uh, then then you and Daryl went out for a slice of pizza and kicked around this idea. And so when we come back from this break, John, if you would pick it up from there because it is it is one of those tales about how records wind up different than you thought they were going to be and, and it can also affect the trajectory of where Hall & Oates went after that so I'm Chris Epting this is John Oates you listen to the moment we'll be back in just a minute become our friend on Facebook post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline visit facebook.com forward slash voice America Chris Epting will be releasing the third edition of his best-selling baseball travel Bible, Roadside Baseball, in June 2019. Academy Award-nominated director Ken Burns said about Roadside Baseball, What a wonderful book. All the stations of the cross of our national pastime are here, big and small, telling and frivolous. I can imagine this book in the glove compartment of every true fan's car. A handy reference to this beloved game, no matter where in the country you are. The new edition features hundreds of new places to discover more rare photos stories and trivia it's everything you need to plan the baseball road trip of your dreams roadside baseball coming this june available for pre-order right now on amazon.com every saturday morning listen for the superstar sports talk block on voice america variety we've got the best programs if you want to talk football hunting outdoors racing and more the weekends belong to sports and you'll find it every saturday beginning at 6 a.m pacific time and 9 a.m eastern time you'll hear from the players owners experts and fans from around the world it's the saturday superstar sports talk block wow that's a mouthful and it's only on the voice america variety channel You are listening to The Moment with Chris Epting. If you have a question or comment about our show, please send an email to Chris at ChrisEpting.com. That's Chris at ChrisEpting.com. Now, back to The Moment. Thank you. I'm back here with my guest today, my friend, John Oates. So, John, it's 40 years ago. You and Daryl have played uh, the Voices album for family and friends in the studio. You're loving it, but then you and Daryl grab a slice of pizza down in the village, and, and you hear something on the jukebox that gives, gives you guys an idea. Why don't you take it from there? We, um, we always traditionally did... Uh 
a listening party at the end of an album project. Uh, and, you know, we, we had never, we never really um, allowed the record company and even, even management and things like that to come into the studio when we were making our records, we were totally independent of all that. And, you know, uh, that, that was, a, you know, a, a blessing that, that we were allowed to do uh, through our success. Um, but, you know, things like that don't, don't quite fly in today's recording world. But nevertheless, um, we did do a listening party with some friends, invited all, you know, the, the band and the girlfriends and the wives and whoever. Uh, and uh, the record did sound good. It sounded good, but it just felt there was one element missing. We didn't know what it was. Um, and it wasn't like a, a problem. It was just one of these things where we both sensed it. And as you said, we went out, we were in the village recording at Electric Lady Studios. Um, and we went down uh, 8th Street and uh, went into Pizza Place uh, half a block away. And when we're sitting there on the jukebox came, You Lost That Love and Feeling by the Righteous Brothers, you know, the, the great uh, classic. And um, Barry Mann and Cynthia Wilde uh, penned amazing song and record. And we heard it and we said, man, why don't we just cut that? It was, it was really as casual as that, nothing more. We said, yeah, let's just go. We'll, we'll get, let's get the band in tomorrow. We'll just record it. And that's what we did. We, we got the band in there. Uh, we cut the track. And Daryl and I sang it, and we did it in, in an afternoon, and that was it. Um, Barry Mann and Cynthia Wilde, the, uh, the composers, have said that it's one, it is their favorite version of it. Um, you know, of course, I guess next to the Righteous Brothers. But, uh, and every time I've run into them over the years, you know, they've always said, oh, thank you for doing it, thank you for doing it. Uh, we love your version, we love your version. And uh, it's just one of those things. It just worked for us. Um, we modified it a bit. We, we modernized it in our way, uh, keeping it in the style of the record. That's the key. I think that's the key right there is you didn't just do a note for note. You did it in your own style. And then all of a sudden, that becomes one of the real launching points of the Voices record because I think it reminds people that you guys came out of a great songwriting era, but that you were also looking ahead. I think that I think that particular single really uh, you know, convinced a lot of people or it just you know, showed once and for all that you guys uh, could, could sort of straddle both sides of this creative fence and acknowledge the past while also look ahead. Mm. Well, you know, by the time the 80s rolled around, you know, we weren't exactly teenagers. Uh, no. You know, we were, you know, we were in our 30s. Um, and, uh, you know, it was, we were seasoned professionals who had been recording and for over almost 15 years or 12 years. I think that's your ninth before. album when that comes yeah, out. I mean, it's- it wasn't, it wasn't like we came out of no. You know, so many casual fans, you know, only know us from the 80s and, and probably, you know, assume that our career began in the 80s, where obviously we were recording in the 60s. So, um, you know, it was it was really that one of those moments where, you know, you get the perfect storm of, of uh, creativity, um, you know, the band, having the right band, having the right studio, having having the music in the air, you know, just all these things that are some of the things that you can put your finger on and some things are ephemeral that you can't really, you can't really uh, articulate, but they all come together in a certain way that make uh, certain moments in pop music uh, powerful. We have a toll-free number here, which is 866-472-5788, 866-472-5788. We have a caller right now, Charlene from Maryland. Uh, you have a question for John here on The Moment. Are you there, Charlene? Hey, Chris. Hey, yeah. Hey, Chris. Hey, John. How you doing? Good. Hi. Good. 
Um, first of all, John, I want to just uh, thank Amy if she's still involved with the Nashville Pedal Project. Uh, that really touched my heart because my mom's in uh, air uh, facility right now. So that really, I hope she's still involved with that. But thank her for me. The question I had was the song uh, Alone Too Long and the brilliant comment Hello Ladies. How did that combination come to be? <laughs> um, I just got lucky on that one. Um, you know, I've always said that, uh, you know, our, our big hits always kind of out, uh, overshadow our album tracks and our deeper cuts, which uh, I think there's a lot of substantial and cool music there. But um, Hello Ladies, the folks at Hello Ladies, either the music supervisor or the producer or the, who knows who was actually responsible for it. But it came out of left field uh, for me. Uh, next thing I knew, uh, we, we were informed that uh, they were going to use it as a theme song on their comedy series on HBO. And um, I was thrilled, you know, obviously it's one of my songs and also the fact that it wasn't exactly a big hit. Uh, but uh, for some reason, that song, uh, it, you know, it, it reflected what they wanted to reflect in, in, the, in that particular, um, particular ser- series. So it's very cool. So sometimes uh, things like that just happen. And again, going back to what we said a little bit earlier, there is something about a lot of your music where it does turn up in so many places. It's so ubiquitous that, you know, this this pop culture footprint that you've left, it, it's it's ongoing. I mean, there's, and I think that's why there are so many young people at Daryl Hall and John Oates shows is that it's, you know, it's whether it's 500 summers, whatever, they're, they're, they're absorbing it from from younger uh, sources like that and, and newer sources, which, uh, which is amazing. John, I had asked you to put together uh, a handful of albums albums that that affected you or influenced you or kind of never got out of your system uh five of them would you walk me through those well yeah sure why not um well you know i have uh, you know i kind of wear you know wear two musical hats you know i've got my obviously the hall and oats hat and i've got the hat that's more of oriented toward roots music and mm-hmm. folk and blues so the, the album collection for me is um is a combination of those things. You know, when I was a kid, I, you know, when I was first playing in my first high school band, you know, I'd, I'd wear a shark skin suit and go play uh, R&B and uh, stuff like that. And then I, you know, I'd be kind of in the coffee houses and, you know, with an acoustic guitar playing uh, folk blues and things like that. So even to this day, my, my, my musical life is exactly the same as that. So that being said, um, let's start with uh, the folk blues stuff. Um, you know, when I was getting into traditional American music, um, I was, I became a huge fan of Doc Watson in the sixties. And, um, a, a good friend of mine brought a Doc Watson. His brother actually came home from college with a Doc Watson record, brought it back. And as soon as I put it on, I said, I have no idea what he's doing, but I want to do it. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> so it was one of those dropped, you know, in the old days in order to learn things, you know, you, you had your guitar in your hand, you dropped the needle on the, on the record and you played a, you know, 10, 15 seconds of something. You took the needle off and tried to figure out what key he was in, how he was doing it. And eventually I, you know, I, I got to play a lot of that Doc Watson stuff and meet him and, you know, and, and you played with him one night, right? At the second so I, fret. I played, with him, I played with him in the, in the dressing room of a, of a folk club. Uh, in in Philadelphia on the main line, and um, so uh, it was called the Main Point. And uh, I met him through my guitar teacher mentor Jerry Ricks. And um, so uh, obviously the, the Doc Watson record on Vanguard, which I believe was his first album mm-hmm. on Vanguard, uh, is just a seminal record. It's it's really it's got some of his greatest material, and he's playing in a, in the most pure, uh, clean way that only Doc Watson can play in. Uh, so that one, uh, you know, I'd say that one. And follow, 
following up uh, in the roots world, the Mississippi John Hurt Avalon Blues 1963 mm-hmm. um, was uh, was a very important record for me, and because Mississippi John Hurt became uh, here again a, a hero to me and uh, someone I emulated, and of course I now own one of his guitars from back in the day when he played the Newport Folk Festival. Our friend so, Tracy Yee uh, helped you track that that thing down, that's right? right. That's right. And uh, so that's a prized possession now. And so the Mississippi John Hurt and Doc Watson stuff were really important to me as a young folk guitar player. But then moving on and more in the R&B stuff, I mean, to limit to five albums is almost impossible, but I'll do my best. Um, The Temptations Live. Uh, Mm -hmm. The Temptations made a live album and it was called The Temptations Live. And it was recorded in a a nightclub. And um, there's something about the energy that can only be captured in a live performance. Uh, you know, I always think about the James Brown live at the Apollos. All right, the right. But the Temptations live, um, with them singing, you know, and, and this is before the days of Pro Tools and being able to auto-tune and correct and fix things. This is total live music being played by real musicians and great and some of the greatest singers in the world and an audience that was just going completely berserk. Uh, with excitement. So when you combine that, you know, there's an energy that crackles off the record. And, um, you know, just one of those things that, you know. And you saw them at the Uptown Theater, right? Oh, I saw them everywhere. (laughs) I saw them at the Uptown. I saw them at the Apollo. You saw them at the Apollo with Daryl. I saw them at the convention convention hall in Philadelphia. I I saw them so many times. Um, I knew everything that I could know about the Temptations. And of course, Daryl's group, the Temptones, uh, when he was in high school, they were kind of sponsored by the Temptations. And Daryl was friends with, uh, especially Paul Williams of the Temptations, uh, took them under his wing. And eventually we, uh, you know, hung out with them and all that sort of thing. So yeah, the Temptations were, were, they were really actually one of the the touchstones for Daryl and I to get together because we both knew the music, you know, backward and forward. And we both uh, loved the Temptations and it was like kind of a starting point for us. Um, Let's see, another record would be The Impressions, uh, Curtis Mayfield and The Impressions, here again in 63, uh, with songs like Keep On Pushing" and I'm So Proud. Hmm. Um, I love the harmonies of The Impressions, and I loved, and I always try to sing like Curtis Mayfield. Um, I, I just loved his vocal style, and to this day, I, I you know, I sing like that. Uh, well, I almost <laughs> sing quite as well, but I, I can definitely uh, I can definitely try to imitate him. Uh, but uh, the, the the impressions had a the you know there was a little bit of gospel, um, mm-hmm. there was a little bit of social consciousness in the impressions and, and Curtis Mayfield. So it was a kind of an unusual, cool combination for that era. Uh, so I put that record down. Um, moving into a more modern, but not that modern uh, time, uh, I would say Joni Mitchell's Blue. Because to me, it is the quintessential singer-songwriter album. It is perfect in every every way. There's nothing, there's no flaws in that record. Um, if there mm-hmm. are, I can't hear them and I don't care. Um, the, the, her, she wears her heart on her sleeve um, with a poetic uh, sensibility that's unmatched and a unique musical style that, uh, because of her guitar tunings and her unusual chord progressions, uh, and her freedom of just, you know, she really just had a, an ability to marry mar- marry poetry with this uh, beautiful, beautiful uh, musical uh, bed. And um, and it's so well recorded. Henry Louis, the engineer who recorded it, was just a consummate, uh, you know, uh, engineer. And 
it just everything about that record is perfect. I, I even the album cover is perfect. <laughs> I was going to say, I was going to the whole package. And it's funny those five records you just talked about. It, it really is a reflection of I think what makes D- Daryl Hall and John Oates so special because you synthesize and celebrate all those influences in what you've always done with with Daryl. You know, and like you, those are the parts you bring to it. He brings what he does, and so you have this this span, this scope of American music that really encompasses a little bit of everything, all the best, most passionate parts, whether it's singer-songwriter, whether it's, you know, the picking, the Americana, whether it's the, you know, the soulfulness of the Temptations. That, that, you've really kind of encapsulated, I think, why the music touches so many people today and so many new listeners as well. It's just a reflection of this whole experience. Yeah, and, and you know, and, and besides my influences and what I bring to the table, Daryl's influences are just as wide and varied and deep. Exactly. So when you combine uh, what, what he brings and what I bring, you know, there's a, there's a lot, we're bringing a lot of ammunition to the, uh, to the skirmish, so to speak. <laughs> we have a call, John, Olivia from California. Olivia, are you there? Hi. Uh, I, uh, oh my goodness. I have two questions. Uh, first of all, hi, I truly admire your music. I think you're fantastic. Uh, uh, first question is going to be about the album Beauty on a Backstreet. Uh, you sing the song The Emptiness, which is one of my favorite songs. Um, you also sing it live on Live Time. But what inspired that song? Because it's so deep and special and just there's something crazy about it that I love. Hmm. That's well, here I'm glad you're at least uh, reaching into the deep tracks. That 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 really makes me happy. But but that song doesn't necessarily make me that happy. Uh, <laughs> uh, the emptiness is exactly. I mean, just, it's 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 a dark song because it was a dark period of time. Um, our music has always reflected what was going on in our lives. Not like in in so much in a, in a overt or blatant way where we tell stories about what was going on in our lives. But they, the, the music somehow sonically or lyrically always reflects what was happening. That record was made under duress in California with a, a, a fellow named Christopher Bond, who unfortunately just passed away recently. Um, he, uh, he, was, uh, he was having problems um, that I'd rather not go into, but it made the recording um, environment very toxic. It was very difficult to do. Uh, Daryl and I were in California, not really wanting to be in California, uh, wanting to record. There, there was all sorts of things that led to. So I think the the, the darkness of that album and this and the kind of, you know, that that the emptiness really, in a kind of a way, uh, you know, it does symbolize what was going on in that record. And so that's the best I can do with with telling you how that that happened. Julie, what's your other question? Or Olivia, rather, I'm sorry. So my second question, um, kind of. An odd question. Um, I am currently in school right now. I mean, like, not physically in school, obviously. But I have a project to finish for my art class, and it's highly based off of uh, your 1976 uh, kind of era, especially with Bigger Than Both of Us. And I'm making a poster, and I was wondering if when I'm finished, I might be able to send it somewhere or give it to someone because it's very special to me. Sure. We'll get you. Uh, we'll I'll get tell you, you what, I'll, John, I'll take care of it. Yeah, Olivia, Olivia, do Olivia, do this. Why don't you give, when you get off here, give Aaron, our engineer, uh, when you get off the line here, give him your uh, contact information. He'll get it to me and we'll coordinate. You're in college right now. 
Olivia, are you still there? I think she's off. I, John, that's an example, I think, of a young person. She's asking you about the emptiness and about yeah. the 1976 era. It's there, There's something for everybody in the Hall & Oates catalog. When you really go back and, and mine through it, there are so many gems that, that jump out at you. And, uh, you know, I think beyond just the hits, obviously, you guys made albums that were so complete from, from beginning to end. Um, Something I want to talk about. You have these great passion projects you get involved with, and one of them is with a gentleman named David Starr, and it's called Beauty and Ruin. Why don't you tell people a little bit about that? Because as you mentioned Joni Mitchell's Blue as being a complete package with everything. To me, David's project is really special and kind of multi-layered like that as well. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I, I'm very proud of this this record. Um, I met David Starr in Colorado. He um, when we were living out there. Uh, we had a lot of friends in common. And uh, David began, you know, David had been coming to Nashville for a number of years working with various people. And uh, as we would, you know, ca- kind of casually cross paths, you know, he always said, I'd love to do something with you one day. And um, we, uh, we got together. He started spending even more time in Nashville. We had a lot of mutual friends. And he played me uh, some, some songs and, I, and he asked me if I would help him. And it, uh, it, it ended up being an EP called The Head and the Heart which came out a few years ago. Um, and the, the, um, we worked really well together. He was very happy uh, with, with how we worked. I surrounded him with uh, world-class musicians who he had never really had a chance to play with. And I think it elevated his game in a big way. And I think he really realized how, um, that he could, uh, you know, he could really kind of shine in that, you know, surrounded with these, this type of uh, studio, recording studio and, and uh, musicians. So he approached me with an idea um, a few years back about uh, a book that his grandfather had written. Uh, it was called What Was uh, of What Was, Nothing Is Left. And it was a book that his grandfather wrote about rural Arkansas, and it's kind of a dark Gothic tale uh, of love and deceit and things like that. And he came up with this brilliant idea. He said, um, what if we gave the book to various songwriters and had them write songs based on their impression of the book? And I thought, wow, what a cool idea. It really is. And, it's a great said, book, yes. too. And I, it is. And I said, yes, let's do it. And I got a copy and uh, David sent the, this book around to various other people, um, Jim Lauderdale and a bunch of other really good songwriters were involved. And uh, we began to craft together uh, these these uh, songs uh, in a uh, kind of a package, really, with the book and the record together. And the record is is called Beauty and Ruin, and it's doing really, really well. It's on the Americana charts uh, in Europe and America and UK. Uh, people love the record, and it's really a very complete, I think it's a complete recording. I think it has a, a style, a tone that's very consistent. Uh, David is really singing well. He's playing well. Uh, the musicians on the album are first class. And uh, yeah. so it was a great, great project. And I'm really pr- proud of him and happy for him. Um, highly recommended. The call um, from Florida. Jaden, are you there? Hi, John. Hi, Chris. Hi. Um, I'm a Hi. big fan. I saw John in November in Stewart, and it was amazing. I'm a big um, Hollow Notes fan and a fan of him as well. Solo music. And so I haven't seen um Paul notes yet, but I did get to see him and Stuart, and it was amazing. So I just wanted to compliment him on his show, his showmanship. <laughs> and Thank you. my question was, um, it's, it's kind of in harmony with Olivia's question about kind of an obscure song. The song I'm talking about is Attention from H2O. 
which is one of my favorite um, Hollow Notes albums from the 80s. I was wondering if that was in harmony with um, what you experienced um, during the the Vietnam War era that you wrote about in Change of Seasons. Um, was that influenced by what you experienced on that era? I don't think it was. It's a great question, by the way. Um, I, I don't think it was directly influenced by it. I think because the Vietnam War ended in the early 70s and that uh, song, Attention, was written in the 80s. So that was a good 10 years afterwards. But, you know, the, the entire decade of the 70s and even into the 80s, there was a lot of, you know, there was a lot of social upheaval in America, you know, um, rioting and, and, you know, the there was all sorts of things. I mean, the bad, you know, the bad and negative things that are happening today in America are not unique to American history. They, they've been going on for a long time. So I think that was a that was just kind of a, a reflection of of also I think it had a lot to do with the music business. It had a lot to do with being not really satisfied and comfortable with um, the push and pull and the demands that were being made on Daryl and I because of our great success during that period of time. And I, so I think it's really a, you know, songs, songs are very seldom about one specific thing, but usually they're kind of a, you know, you kind of take all this feelings, emotions, and actual things that, that really do happen and they, they, they get filtered through the prism of, of a songwriter's thinking, and they come out uh, as, a, as a really, as a, almost like an impression of, a, of something, as opposed to the exact story. You know, there's a lot of story songwriters who write literal stories, you know. Hey, I got up in the morning, and I did this, and I went for a drive in my car, and I met this girl. And uh, We don't really write like that. Um, so uh, our, our songs are much more impressionistic. That's why I'm really excited about what the new stuff's going to end up being because you know I'm just wondering what you're going to what you're going to channel. Are you going to kind of go back in time and think about what a classic Hall and Oates record sounded like, or is it going to be completely modern? I I am fascinated by the fact that you, I have to tell you, like a lot of fans, that you guys are back uh, back on the horse with this. Um, John, I have a question because I know some folks. Uh, you know, you're an, you're an author now as well as as a result of your memoir, and I know some folks are listening uh, who are who are writers who who. Are, want to put their stories together. What did you learn mostly about yourself when you were done with our book? Because you and I got together early on and kind of mapped out what we wanted it to be. And I think we achieved that. But I think you went through a lot of different growth cycles in the writing of your book. At the end of it all, um, was A, was it a good experience for you? And B, what did you learn about yourself having put everything down there on paper? Um, I think I was a little bit shocked with... Um, <laughs> how I was able to squeeze so much life into a small life. Uh, I, I don't know how I had the time to do any of that stuff. Um, it kind of blew, blew my mind. Um, but, uh, you know, you know, I, I just, um, I just wanted to, you know, with your help and, and, you know, to, to represent who I am as a person. And, you know, as we discussed early on in the project, the biggest challenge was how do I tell my personal story when my personal story is so intrinsically connected and wrapped up in the Hall and Oates experience. Right. Uh, so that was, I think that was a challenge that I was very actually proud and happy that you and I were able to, um, to, to navigate. Um, and that, that wasn't easy, I, I think. Uh, but 
Um, I'm very proud of the book, and I was really glad that you pushed me to do it and that you were such an important part to help, help make that happen. Well, I, you know, I appreciate you saying that, but I talk about you in class a lot and how the experience with you basically ruined me in a sense because from a collaboration standpoint, it, for me, it became like the gold standard because you apply this discipline. For those who don't know, whether you're racing, flying, making music, or writing a book, you have this really rigid approach that you take that like it's got to be exceptional. We're not going to stop it's, if it's got to be rewritten 10 times, whatever. And that process... I found uh, made me so much better when we were done. And, and then I was kind of sad because it was like, well, I don't think that'll happen again. There's, you know, again, I, I wonder too, when you work with musicians, you know, our, our friend Tracy shared a video the other day of you working with, I think it was the Parachute Club back in the mid eighties. And I could, I watched it. I could tell back then when you work with people, you bring them up, you, you set a standard, you set a mark and that's what you've got to do. And I, that's just something I've noticed about you. And I would guess that anybody you work with, whether it's David Starr recently or, or whomever, that you bring this sort of ideal where it's like, we got to shoot high, we got to shoot high, we got to hit high. And that's that's why I think you're still doing what you're doing on your own terms today is that you have these these incredible standards that you hold yourself to. Well, thank you. I, I, I like to think so. <laughs> <laughs> um, we got a couple time for another call or two. If you want the number is 866-472-5788. John, you wanted to mention a few things you're doing coming up in the near future, right? Yeah. I mean, this, uh, this uh, sequestered situation has really led me to start to uh, – tap into the, the, the amazing potential of, of the internet and Instagram and the social media that I really hadn't, you know, I really wasn't that focused on, to be honest with you. But yeah, but you're good. Okay, but wait a minute. Your social media treatments, I think a lot of people really enjoy because of all the personal touches. I mean, honestly, you, I had a note here. Um, you, on your birthday, you posted a yoga video that was really funny. <laughs> What, what, what inspired that? Because, again, that's a case of an artist kind of letting his guard down and just being silly. What made you do that? That's my wife, Amy. That's, she, you know, she has got me to do all this stuff. She's the one. She, 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 you know, every time I post something, you know, with me playing the guitar or something about music, you know, there'd be a few hundred people be interested. And then I'd post something with me standing on one leg, with, you know, looking at a squirrel. And we'd be, you know, 10,000 people, you know, reacting to it. So um, she said, you know, she's kind of guided me in that. Uh, oh, that's so it's Amy. Kind of okay. Well, Lori already wanted to know that. I thought it was a funny question. So Amy is the, the, me- the method of the madness. It's all, it's all coming from Amy. Oh, she is the, she's the puppet master. She is, um, <laughs> she's behind the, the scenes making it all happen when it comes to my uh, social media profile um we also we also um i since i've been recording live acoustic songs for various uh people we've decided to create something called the she shed sessions which is down in her basement uh, where she makes her flower arrangements and um it's the she shed and so i'm going to be doing acoustic songs from there and we're going to post those uh and we're (laughs) we're also working on a um a car oriented uh, a motorsports oriented uh thing um called uh, Car Laboration, a uh, little play on collaboration. And um, <laughs> we're going to be, uh, I'm going to be doing some interviews and, uh, you know, with uh, various luminaries in the world of cars and things that I like, um, talking to designers and builders and racers and stuff like that. So, and, and going into my archives and pulling out photographs and things that I have for many, many years of, of uh being involved with racing and cars that no one's ever seen. And they just sit in my closet. And I thought, you know what? The world needs to see some of these things. Well, you're really making the most of this time, huh? I am. I'm trying, I'm trying my best. Yep. 
Do you find, I mean, for you, John, social media, the more you get into it, do you enjoy it? I mean, again, you've got, there, there are great fan bases that are terrific um, Facebook groups of so the group Tracy created. There's a group called No Goodbyes, the Lori Heads Up. You've got fans that have been with you for a long time that are very, um, very engaged. So it's got to be good for you to know that you can reach out to them and share these things. You've got a built-in base right there that's been with you forever, that knows you inside out and is just hungry for more, right? Yeah. And it's, it, you know, and I didn't, as I said, I didn't realize that, you know, kind of really, really understand the potential. Um, but now that I'm getting into it and Amy's able to help me um, and we have a team with Tracy Yee and, you know, Kate Richardson and Lane and, and uh, we're kind of putting together a little team to help me uh, make all this happen. So now I can start to just uh, enjoy the creative aspect, not get bogged down in the technology of it. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, so, yes, I think there's going to be some cool things coming on. And look, we don't know, obviously, what's going to happen in terms of live performances. That doesn't preclude, you know, you and Daryl working on the new music. But as far as you know, at this point, I mean, obviously, the summer is going to be pretty quiet, it looks like. Um, but, uh, you know, beyond that, we just don't know what the future of live music is going to be. For, how was that for you? Because what's interesting to me is that, like, the fact that you, you had been going back to your roots and, and doing those, you know, wonderful Arkansas tours and the Good Road tours with, the, you know, with the Good Road band, it's sort of like for you going online now and doing it, it, it's your wheelhouse. It's what you're really good at. You don't need, you know what I mean? Like, the irony, I think, is when you pick up an acoustic guitar, that's sort of the heart and soul of John O. And this is a chance for you now to just do that and show more people that this is really where you come from. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 it's really it, what, what really pleases me the most and satisfies me the most is that people have accepted it. Um, it's very hard for someone, especially someone who has the track record and the success of the commercial type of success that I have with Daryl to really do anything else that people tend to want to keep you in that box. They, they don't want you to stray too far from, from what they, you know, their perception and, and, you know, what, you know, what they believe you are. Um, and it's very difficult to get, you know, you can do it, but it doesn't mean it's going to be accepted. I, I'm, I, it's one of my most proud moments that I feel like I've been accepted in the Americana community and the roots music community, as well as in the, the pop in, in pop culture. So that's a, that's, that's, I think it's an achievement that I'm proud of. Well, not a lot of people can claim that. I mean, again, and, and what's interesting to me about you, John, is that for a lot of people, the pop success would be enough. But for you, it's not because you do have this uh, th- this thing about pushing forward and not getting locked in the past. And that, I think that has a lot to do with it, too. It's probably why you, you'll, you'll find yourself just at home on stage at the Opry as you do at Madison Square Garden, because, again, you're, you're accepted in all these different worlds. But I think that comes from your passion and authenticity that you apply to whatever you do right i mean that's just that of course they're going to respect you because you're there for the right reasons yeah yeah well I, it, it, like i said that's uh, that's i'm very proud of that fact john what do you think okay so other, any other projects you want to get in there before we uh we sign off in a second. I mean, again, I know you've got some other benefit things coming up. You know, it's funny, really quickly, with all the benefit stuff and all these online things, I mean, we are the world. You were part of kind of one of the first one of those, really, where people came together for common good and common cause and did something. When you think back on that, does anything jump out at you from that night? Because I was watching part of a documentary the other night about it, and it's funny seeing you guys in there in that moment. I think you had done, uh, I think the American Music Awards had been that night, right? And everybody went from there over to uh, to the studio, A&M Studios on, on La Brea. Uh, yeah, 
they went straight from the American Music Awards because in those days there were, really weren't that many uh, events like that. You know, there were the Grammys, the American Music Awards. Right, right. Much it. So everyone who was anyone in pop music was there that night. So it was very clever and very uh, fortuitous that, uh, uh, you know, Michael Jackson and, you know, and, and Lionel and Quincy Jones could get everyone to come straight from the awards straight to the studio. Mm-hmm. Um, my, the thing, one of the things I remember the most about it was the, the place where I was standing, and you can see it in the pictures if you look at a picture of that moment. I was standing right in between uh, Ray Charles and Bob Dylan. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I just thought that was kind of interesting. And uh, listening to the comments in between the, the, the musical takes and things like that and uh, how, how everyone uh, deferred to Ray Charles and, uh, it was it was just uh, it was just very cool. Um, you know, that was a pinch me, you know, pinch myself kind of moment. You you were smart, too. In your house, you have uh, one of your places up on the wall. You took yep. a piece of sheet music that night right before you left and created uh, a, a really incredible souvenir from the moment. Yes, everyone was given a lead sheet when they came in with the lyrics of the song and the chord changes. Um, and uh, I took my lead sheet and went around and had everyone sign it. And I have it framed in my music room so yeah it's definitely a you know one of my prized possessions yeah well again for those of you that want to hear a lot of more of john's moments in, in our book change of seasons we covered a lot of those and you know that year was crazy in and of itself because you had live aid you had the temptations at the apollo and um you know i'll, I'll just again those mid-80s for you and again what, what, I, what I loved about your honesty too is you go into the the blessing and curse aspect that it's not all a bed of roses. And I think that was revelatory as well because we all assumed everything was fine, but it really wasn't. And, and that was the measure of good storytelling that you brought to, to the book and your stories is that, you know, the behind the scenes, things aren't always what they appear, but you've certainly landed at this place now. And John, I, I think we need to do more of this. So I'm, I'll hold you to this. Now, once you get more into the record with Daryl and then the year progresses and things begin to, to open up and become more concrete about, what you're going to be doing the rest of the year. Let's get back together and give fans an update and, and do this again if you're cool with that. Sounds good. All right. Anytime, Chris. I want to thank John Ost for being my special guest today on The Moment as we uh, work our way through this this coronavirus season. But again, be inspired. Here's a guy, here's John, who is making the most of every minute in, in true to form John Oates fashion, not letting one minute go to waste. So we thank him for being here today. Aaron Keller, I want to thank my engineer. I want to thank the callers who called in today. And in the meantime, be back next week with another edition of The Moment. I'm Chris Epting. Thank you for listening. for taking a moment out of your busy week to join us for The Moment. Be sure to join Chris Epting for another edition every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you here next week.